We're in the final message today of um, our summer series, Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers. If you're just tuning in uh, for the first time this morning, uh, we asked people last spring to submit questions that they would love to hear a message about. And um, so we've been uh, doing those uh, week by week. And um, I've, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've, I've enjoyed preparing these messages and digging into these topics. Um, every one of them has been challenging to me personally, and I hope they've been helpful to you. Um, others of you are going, man, this is great. This is the last message. We're done. But uh, our, our topic today is, if God is so good, why would he allow genocide? And I, I'll be honest with you, I, I put this message off to the last because I wanted to be able to think about it. Uh, this is a big question because, and let me just read to you. I'm not going to put it on the screen because this is long. But this was the question as it was originally uh, presented to me. If God is against killing, then why did he order the Jews to annihilate all peoples previously occupying the Holy Land as they were to enter it? Good question, huh? I know it makes sense given the idea that survivors would take revenge against the Jews, but it bothers me that a good and holy God would make that order, especially regarding women and children. I know at least one group was spared because they declared the power of the Lord and gave allegiance to the Jews, not sure if allegiance is the right word, which suggests that God would spare anyone who submitted to him. But is there more to this answer? God loves his people. He's made that clear. The Bible includes texts that say how he knows us from when we were in our mother's womb, knows the number of hairs on our heads, knows our pain and suffering, and has a purpose for our lives as individuals to be a part of and serve in his kingdom. If that's true, why does God allow genocide of his people to happen? I get that trials are purposeful in leading us to steadfastness in our faith and reliance on God, a la James 1, 2 to 4. But this seems to be on an individual basis and for trials. Is genocide a trial? Is 400 years of slavery being born into and dying because of it a trial? I speak of the genocide of Christians by ISIS and the Turks of the Ottoman Empire against the Armenians. I also speak of the 400 years of enslavement of God's chosen people and that he waited to act on the cries of his people after so long, meaning that so many millions of lives had no purpose but to be exploited by evildoers. Is there scripture that speaks to the plight of all of his beloved children and not individual trials as in James 1? So I decided we'd just have a discussion today. Any of you want to chime in? <laughs> just kidding. That's, that's a lot, isn't it? You see why I put it off to the end. Well, it's a very, very important set of questions, though. Um, for many people, the greatest obstacle to faith in the God of the Bible is not something like the exclusivity of Christianity, um, but really the very presence of evil and suffering in the world. It becomes a major obstacle for many people. Add to that the questions that, that arise when people read in the Old Testament that God himself commanded the slaughter of entire people groups. And it should come as no surprise then that confronted with the theological and philosophical and ethical challenges presented by these issues, uh, many will draw conclusions about the nature and character of God or even the very existence of God that lead them away from biblical faith. And uh, I want you to follow me down a little path for just a moment 
Now we'll seem like a divergence from the main talk topic, but bear with me and I promise I'll circle back around. In chapter two of his best seller, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, Timothy Keller quotes philosopher J.L. Mackey, who wrote in 1982, I guess it is J.I. Mackey, if, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Uh, maybe you've heard someone say something like that in the past. Well, Timothy Keller goes on, though, to point out the major flaw in Mackey's reasoning that, uh, and this is an observation that's been made by other philosophers as well, tucked away within Mackey's assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, why then it must in fact be pointless. Now, Keller comments, and I quote, this reasoning is of course fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. Uh, this is blind faith of a high order. You see, we'll always struggle when we demand that the limits of our own intellect define the limits of God. I mean, if you have a God great enough and transcendent enough, for example, to be mad at, <laughs> Uh, because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God who's great enough and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it con to continue that you can't know. Uh, we can't have it both ways. So I promised I'd circle back around. I, I want to apply that same principle to the the questions that were posed by today's questioner, especially the question of whether a good, loving, and just God could ever order the annihilation of an entire people group or people groups. And again, I want to reiterate that, that God, if he is the supreme, all-wise, all-knowing God of the Bible who knows the end from the beginning and is orchestrating all of history to, towards one predetermined end, which is, according to the Apostle Paul, to bring everything in heaven and earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, God had reasons for doing so, the fullness of which we may not completely understand uh, beyond what he has revealed in Scripture. At the same time, it's, it's essential for us to examine the Scriptures because as we do, we find that God has explained himself and his actions to a very significant degree in the pages of scripture. And most of it is understandable if we will take the time to read his word and thoughtfully consider what it has to say. 
But let's begin with some of the low-hanging fruit in that set of questions, the, the more basic questions that are part of that whole set, and then, and then we'll consider the broader issues, because some of this low-hanging fruit is foundational to the larger question. The questioner began the first paragraph with this phrase, if God is against killing, uh, and many people share the view that God is against killing of any kind. Um, but while God is the author and he's the giver of life and he takes no delight in death, the, the notion that God is against all killing of every kind is simply inaccurate. Uh, the sixth commandment in Exodus 20 verse 13 is not you shall not kill, but it is specifically you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And, and that Hebrew word for murder, rasak, has a very precise and a very narrow meaning. It represents the intentional killing of another human being, uh, we, which we used to use the phrase with malice aforethought. Today we, we use the expression premeditation, premeditated murder. But when we examine the issue in the, in the broader context of, of God's word, we, we come to the realization that, that this sixth commandment doesn't apply to accidental killings, what we might call manslaughter. It, it doesn't apply to killing animals. Um, it doesn't apply to killing someone in self-defense, for example, in the course of defending one's home from an intruder. It, it doesn't apply to the execution of murderers by the state. And neither does it apply to taking life in the course of military action as a consequence of legitimate warfare. Not all killing constitutes murder. In fact, most killing does not. So I just file that thought away and, and hold it as we move on because it will apply later. Next, the questioner asked, if God loves his people, knows us from when we're in our mother's wombs, knows the number of hairs on our heads, knows our pain and suffering and has a purpose for our lives, why does God allow genocide of his people to happen? Good question. Before responding to it, I want to add to that list. What I want to add is that God also knew every day that he appointed for each of us before there was yet one of them. David tells us that in Psalm 139. And included in those days that he appointed for us and bracketed on either end of them is the day of our physical death and the day, or the physical birth and the day of our physical death. And as we observed last week, there, there will be a generation that will be alive when Jesus returns, but until then, people will go on dying. Christians will go on dying. God's people will go on dying. And, and those who are left behind will go on dying as well. And God's word tells us that until the end, evil is going to continue. It will proliferate. It will increase right up to the very end. So when we think about the genocide of Christians, uh, God allowing the genocide of his people to happen, uh, that's a symptom of, of the proliferating, increasing, mounting evil in the world. And, and the, God's word tells us that God is patient, um, and, but, but that he will act. See, a person rarely dies, but that someone usually multiple someones, ask questions like, why? Why did they die? Uh, why now? Why were they taken away from people who loved them and needed them? Uh, why did they die in the way that they died? 
And unless the person is uh, quite elderly and simply died of natural causes in old age, all of our answers this side of heaven are usually quite inadequate. We just don't know why in every case. And we won't know, can't know, until we join them in heaven and our knowledge is made perfect. But we do know this, that the Lord knows, that the Lord cares, and that he is attentive when one of his people dies. He knows, he cares, he's attentive when one of his people dies. And we see that especially in Psalm 116, verse 15, probably puts it best. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Uh, God knows, he cares, he's attentive. And the questioner added this, I also speak of the 400 years of enslavement of God's chosen people, Israel, and that he waited to act on the cries of his people after so long, meaning that so many millions of lives had no purpose but to be exploited by evildoers. Well, this takes us back, I think, to what we can and cannot know. Um, it can be easy to see the purposes of God being lived out in the life of someone who is healthy and wealthy and gifted and free, it, it can be harder to see in the lives of others. But I, I can't personally affirm the view that, that the life of a person, um, for example, with a debilitating physical condition uh, that leaves them homebound or isolated has no purpose for living. I, I can't draw that conclusion. Uh, that's way above my pay grade. Uh, I've often reflected that um, one of the purposes of the lives of those who are disabled is to contribute to the shaping of the character of those who care for them, to, to teach them deeper dimensions of what it means to love, to shape in the heart of those people the hearts of a servant. But from the fact that I cannot personally perceive God's purpose for anyone's life, it does not logically follow that God doesn't have one, that God doesn't have a purpose for their life. And in fact, even my best and fullest perception of one's purpose will be shown in the final analysis to have been woefully partial. Uh, and that provides, I think, a, a great segue into the broader question that we need to answer this morning, which is the question of why God would allow the genocide of his people or order Israel to annihilate the residents of Jericho and the peoples who inhabited the land of Canaan, the land God promised to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And, and, I, and I just want to make this point before we dive into the deep end of the pool here that um, there is more tied up in the questions that were asked here than I have time to answer in one sermon. And so the thoughts that I'm sharing with you, I want to acknowledge up front. I'm providing them kind of in an outline form. They're, they're broad answers to questions, but I think they form the outline that, uh, that will help each of us connect the dots. And so I'll try to connect as many as I can, but I'm going to ask you to engage your mind in this as well. So let's begin with this, that this simple observation that God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. And that's stated and expressed in a variety of ways in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 711, very direct statement, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Uh, what, a, what an interesting statement. 
a God who feels indignation every day, day after day since Adam sinned in the garden. The holy and righteous God observes the unholiness and the unrighteousness of rebellious humanity and feels indignation at what he sees and hears. And, um, you know, you kind of think of this heavenly Alka-Seltzer God taking to just to quell his stomach, you know, at, at what he sees in us all the time. God is the righteous judge. And then in Psalm 9, uh, 7 and 8 and 19, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. And again, these, these passages are, are simply representative of, of a lot of passages throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that speak to this same truth. He is the one true God of the universe. All peoples of every nation are accountable to him. Uh, a lot of times we, we, we uh, fool ourselves into thinking that only the church and only Israel are accountable to God, but God is the God of the, the whole universe, every people on the face of the earth, every individual on the face of the earth is accountable to God. Um, his judgments are true and right and irrevocable. Ezekiel 24, verse 14, God speaking through the prophet, I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. So all of humanity is accountable before God, subject to his judgment. So that's foundational. God is the righteous judge. And, and then consider this, that as the author and the giver of life, God possesses uh, the, the authority, the supreme authority, the complete authority to take life away. Uh, we see that in in the, the book of Job, chapter 1, um, Job, a servant of the Lord, a, a godly man, a wealthy man, understood this truth. Uh, chapter 1 of that book of, of Job says that Job received in one day the news that his servants had been attacked and killed. 11,000 head of livestock stolen his seven sons and three daughters killed all at once when the home of his eldest son, where they had all gathered, collapsed on them in a powerful storm. Well, how did Job respond to such overwhelming and devastating news? We read in verses 20 to 21, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Job grieved to be sure. He mourned his losses. We see that in the tearing of the robe, the, the shaving of the head, the falling on the ground. That's, that's all classic uh, ancient form of, of mourning and grieving. And he said, you know, naked I came from my mother's womb. He, he had an eternal perspective on his stuff. But in the midst of his pain, terrible pain, it was just unimaginable, he, he worshipped and he blessed the Lord and he affirmed God's implicit authority not only to give life but to take it away as well. And Job understood 
what we need to understand, that, that God is, is under no obligation to prolong anyone's life for even one second, including yours and mine. So add to that then, and then we're getting closer to the heart of the matter here. God gave to Israel as they entered the promised land, this land that they were to invade and, and take over, God gave them two sets of laws concerning warfare. You can call them rules of engagement if you wish. Beginning at verse 10 of Deuteronomy 20, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations there. Just pause right there at verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not cities of the nations here. So he's talking about the, the cities of, of people groups outside the, the promised land. Continuing at verse 16, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Two sets of rules of engagement, one for enemies outside the land of promise, another for enemies inside. One that, while it's still brutal and decisive, included provisions for women and children, another that was utterly without mercy. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. So I was reading that this week, I was reminded of a, a popular poster that was, uh, that was about during the Vietnam era, kind of a a hawkish poster that said, kill them all, let God sort them out. And that's, that's kind of the command that's given to, to the Israelites regarding uh, the, the people with, that were living within the land that God had promised to them. Well, behind that second set of laws is what God described to Abraham 500 years earlier as the iniquity of the Amorites. So again, 500 years earlier. So here's the conversation. It's in Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Who's he talking about? Where were they? Egypt, okay, slavery in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. I'll bring judgment on Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You're going to live a long life, Abraham. 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And you'd say, I was with them right up to that last line, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's that all about? Well, the Amorites were one of those peoples living in the land of Canaan. They, they stand as representative here, I think, of all of the peoples living in Canaan in that time of Joshua, 500 years after this of this thing that God predicted to, to Abraham. And, and so God, in his divine foresight, is, is looking down over the centuries. He's seeing that, that there would come a time when he would need to act to judge those peoples. And the Amorites, uh, Doug Boyce told me in between services, um, he had read an article that the, the Amorites were, were regarded as kind of the, the worst of the worst in, in, in the ancient world. Um, so, so the Amorites stand as representative of, of all those people, and he wasn't going to judge them until they were utterly debauched, they were undeniably, irredeemably deserving of judgment. So God judged Egypt, as is chronicled in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, and delivered Israel from slavery there. And by doing that and leading Israel to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, God intended to use Israel as his instrument of judgment of the Canaanite tribes, just as he would later use other nations to judge Israel. In fact, there's an immediate uh, example of that, uh, following the, the battle at Jericho, uh, when a guy named Achan took some stuff he wasn't to take from the plunder of Jericho, hid it in his tent, and they went to the next city and, when, and went to do battle against it, and they got, the, they got spanked and sent home whimpering, and they lost a lot of warriors in that battle, God judging, God using the residents of a, a village called Ai, or I think it's actually technically pronounced I, but it, I, I say A-I. But anyway, God used them to judge Israel almost immediately. But listen to, to God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 23 of Ezekiel. I will bring them against you, them as the other guys, you is Israel, from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, I assume those three names are kings, and all the Assyrians with them, and they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I, God, will commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you, Israel, according to their judgments. I'm going to use those guys later to judge you. So, so God is using Israel as his instrument of judgment of the Canaanites. It's not just, not just an invasion. It's not just a taking over. It's God judging the Canaanites and using Israel as his instrument. And note this, that God had more than sufficient moral grounds for issuing such an extreme command. In Leviticus 18... There's a, you find there at the, the early part of Leviticus 18 a list of prohibited sexual practices. And among them, incest, fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, human sacrifice, 
and child sacrifice. And I, I assume because of the context in which that reference to human sacrifice and child sacrifice um, is present, that, that the, even that activity of sacrifice has some kind of sexual dimension to it uh, among the Canaanites. Now listen what God says to Israel, beginning at verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That's a pretty picture, isn't it? But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became clean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, God said another thing in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that's similar. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God had more than sufficient moral grounds. God determined the time of their judgment and he used Israel as the instrument of judgment. But observe this, that the goal of the command was not primarily destruction, although that was involved, but it was primarily dispossession to drive out the Canaanites. And again, by the way, when I use the term Canaanites, I'm speaking of all the people groups inhabiting the land when Israel arrived. Now, I've given you a number of script, uh, scriptures in the outline in your program that speak to this. I don't have time to unpack all of them this morning, so I hope that you're, if you're interested, you'll take the time to read them for yourself. But notice just a few of them with me. Deuteronomy 11, verse 23. The Lord will, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Uh, Numbers 32.21, every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him. And then Joshua 3.10, the living God is among you, and he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites and the Uptites and the Outisites. Notice that in some of these passages, it is the Lord who will drive out 
the nations inhabiting the land. He says, I'm going to drive them out. And in others, it's the responsibility of Israel. And in, and in most, it's both God and Israel working in concert to dispossess the people of their land, their cities, and their homes. Um, some of the scriptures I listed point to the reality that, that it wouldn't happen all at once. In fact, God says, I won't drive them all out at once. I'm going to do this gradually. There would be a gradual dispossession, a gradual driving out, a gradual possession by Israel of the land. But notice Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 10 especially, and, and, and follow along with me as I read. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, etc., seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. By the way, young people, great reason not to marry an unbeliever. Then the anger, anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So there are a number of factors there, a number of reasons for the, the goal of driving out the peoples and dispossessing them of their homes, showing them no mercy. One is simply the, the fulfillment of God, uh, of his promise of the land to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Um, God is a promise keeper and he's keeping his promise. Still another is God's a judgment of these people groups in the face of their extreme wickedness. And then still another is the elimination and the removal from the land of that potent, evil, moral, and spiritual influence on the Israelites who were to be God's uh, holy people. Well, the language of driving out doesn't begin with the conquest of the land. The language of driving out originates from the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I want to just take you there very briefly. Genesis 3, 23 and 24. The Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I could unpack that right now, but I'm not going to, all I'm going to say here is notice that, that because of Adam's sin, he was driven out of the garden, was not allowed back in. No way, no how. And then, you know that, that uh, Adam and Eve's two boys, Cain and Abel, uh, had a conflict. Cain had a conflict with Abel. Cain had a fl- conflict with the Lord. And he killed his brother Abel. And in Genesis 4, 13 and 16, we hear this from Cain. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this driving out, this sending away, was not in the case of Adam and Eve, merely away from the garden. It was not in the case of Cain, merely from the ground. But in both cases, each of them was in fact driven away from the very presence of the Lord. In the case of Israel, in the land of Canaan then, we should think of this dispossession, this driving out of the inhabitants as God's means of cleansing and purifying the land itself. Now those who know something of the story of the Battle of Jericho usually focus on the abnormal battle plan, you know, marching seven times around the city and shouting and the miracle of the walls falling flat. And I was I was thinking about when I was in high school and I was in Young Life and we used to sing Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, woo, Jericho, woo, Jericho, whoa, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, woo. And the walls came tumbling down, 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 Scooby down, 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 down. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. <laughs> But we don't think about the fact that, you know, we, we think of that story and we're caught up in the miracle of the walls falling and all of that. But we don't think about the fact of what happened immediately upon the fall of the walls that Israel rushed into the city and, and put everyone to the sword. Everyone died with the exception of a, a select few. And Joshua 6.21 says, Then they devoted all in the city of Jericho to destruction, both Men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. It's easy to forget or even to avoid thinking about the fact that the battle of Jericho ended in the slaughter of everyone in the city. Was it genocide? Probably an overstatement to call it that. There was no apparent racial animus here, no, no you know, fundamental intent to pursue and exterminate entire people groups, but it was nevertheless wholesale taking of life. And it's probably important to note here that there are no records of any killing of women and children in battle after the defeat of the city of Jericho. So God used Israel as the instrument of judgment. He had moral reason to do so. But God also used Israel as an instrument of redemption for the righteous as well as of judgment for the wicked. It's important for us to see this. It's really essential for us to see this. You might remember back in Genesis 18, if you've read the story of of, uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and again, this is 500 years before Joshua, 
God announced to Abram that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And there's this really uh, interesting, almost humorous conversation that goes on between Abraham and God. God. Abraham confronts the Lord. He says, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham, you know, goes into this rant, almost like a Middle Eastern merchant. He said, well, what if there are 40? Will you spare the city for 40 righteous people? And God says, I will. Well, how about 30? 30 righteous people. Will you spare the city for 30? God says, I will. Well, 20, yes. Do I hear 10? Yes. <laughs> For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But there weren't ten. There wasn't even one. And God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Moving forward again 500 years to the time of Joshua, the God, Abraham, or I, I'm all confused now. Joshua sent spies into the land, sent two spies. They hung out in the home of a woman named Rahab, uh, who may or may not have been a prostitute. Uh, she was at least an innkeeper. And um, she, while they were with her, and while she was hiding them, uh, Rahab declared her faith in the God of Israel. That she, from what they had heard, he said, all of our hearts are melting. And she says, I know that your God, the God of Israel, is the God of heaven and earth. So when the time came and the walls fell flat, here's where we pick it up. Joshua 6, 21 to 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. She made them swear that she would be spared. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Rahab become, became the, the great-grandmother of King David. And Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, uh, listed in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith. God used Israel in the life of Rahab as an instrument of redemption for the righteous. 
as well as judgment for the wicked. Well, let me land this plane. The conquest of Canaan points us forward to the conquest of the cross. Why is that so? Because the judgment of the Canaanites was a just judgment. It was God, the righteous judge, acting to punish sin, to to release his wrath on sin. And he did that justly, and he did that righteously. You and I deserve the same judgment. In Romans 3, Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction, Paul says, between us and, and, and anyone else, the Jews and anyone else. There is no distinction. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means to to turn God's wrath away. Propitiation by his blood, the blood of Christ, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That is, God was being patient with you. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, at the cross, God was just. He he punished sin. And the Bible says that, that Jesus Christ bore in his body the sins of us all. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, as our high priest, offered one sacrifice for all time, for all sin. And then his work was finished. And Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished, paid in full. So God was just in dealing with sin in that he poured out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus stood in as our substitute. He bore the wrath that you and I should have experienced. He was our wrath absorber, if you will. So he is just, and then he says he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As you look to Jesus and you say, I want to be a beneficiary of what Christ accomplished at the cross, then you're justified. You're justified. Romans 6.23 The Apostle Paul goes on in that letter to the church at Rome. He says in that verse, for the wage of sin is death. It is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are justified as a free gift. 
a free gift. And God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I hope this has been helpful to you. What I want you to understand today is that, that apart from a personal faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you are subject still today to the wrath of God. You stand uh, in, under his judgment and it will come to pass. The British author C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who bow their knee to God and say, your will be done. And then there are those who refuse to bow their knee and say, my will be done. And what I want you to understand in that, and what C.S. Lewis was was saying as he wrote that, was that uh, hell is a choice. It's not a punishment. It's a choice that you make because... If you can trust in Christ for the deliverance from from that judgment and your justification before God, why would you not choose that except that you're unwilling to bow your knee to anyone? My hope is that you will and that you will consider these things and that you will consider Jesus, uh, God's provision, God's only provision for our predicament of sin and separation from him. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. It is sobering. Parts of it are hard to understand. And yet, Lord, uh, you, you have made those things that are most important for us to understand very clear. And, uh, Father, I pray today for those who uh, are considering faith, that are considering your son, Jesus, uh, that today might be the day that you grant to them the gift of faith that leads to life, that they would trust in Christ, that their sins would be forgiven, they would be delivered from the wrath that is coming, and they would have the hope and uh, the confidence and the joy of eternal life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.